Hi, my name is Hero Bean Stevenson, and you're listening to the All of Us podcast, where we explore and embrace mental health through the simple act of honest conversation. Before we get into it, I'd like to mention that in sharing my personal experiences and insights, I do not claim to be an authority or expert on any of the issues that might come up in the discussion you're about to hear. These conversations include in-depth discussion around various mental health-related topics, the details of which may be triggering to some. So please take care while listening. Finally, thank you for coming and enjoy the episode. episode 14 of the All of Us podcast, and today you'll be hearing a conversation between me and Dr. Jess Shatkin, one of the country's foremost voices in child and adolescent mental health. He is the Vice Chair for Education and Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Pediatrics at the NYU School of Medicine, as well as the author of Child and Adolescent Mental Health, A Practical All-in-One Guide, which is on its second edition, and more recently, Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Help Keep Them Safe. Dr. Shatkin was kind enough to take the time to speak with me from his home in upstate New York and tell me about his journey into the field of mental health, as well as how the pandemic has shifted his teaching and the way it has shifted the individual treatment of his patients. I also was very excited to be able to ask an expert about a topic that is so fascinating and important to me, which is the impact of technology and the internet on young people especially. He is truly a wealth of knowledge on the subject that is foundational to this podcast, so I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did recording it. That's all from me. Now here's my conversation with Dr. Jess Shatkin. Hi, how are you? Oop, can hey. you hear me? Hi. Sorry, I had my volume off for a minute. No worries. Doing? I'm good. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I'm Hero. Yeah, I'm Jess. It's early for you. It is early for me. It's 8 a.m., but I'm a pretty I'm a pretty early riser. Yeah, okay. And where'd you get your name, Hero? I got my name from I'm not named after the character, but my mom had seen when she was pregnant with me um, the Shakespeare play Much Ado About Nothing, and she heard the name Hero for a woman, and she really loved it. So that's what it is. And then my middle name is Bean, and that was just for fun. Also unusual. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Use the whole thing. You you lay it out there. I do. I kind of I went through one period of time in my like early childhood when I really wanted a name like Jane. Mm -hmm. or something um yeah i wanted something very normal uh and then kind of after that embraced embraced all of it my daughter's 22 and her name is parker and she hated her name until she was about 10th grade and then just loved it that's when it happens it's when you hit the kind of like discovering individuality phase of like Totally. That's when it happens. Yeah. And I also, I have a sister. Um, I have two sisters, half sisters, but one Mary, I have Josephine and Mary Louise. And so I kind of always like compared yeah. my myself to them. and was like, oh man. And they're kind of, um, Mary Louise is actually, she's also at Langone. She's a Mohs surgeon and a dermatologist. How about that? So she's, she's in the umbrella. Uh-huh. Do you yeah. visit her or have you visited her out here before? I have. Yeah. I, um, she's in the city. And so my dad, a lot of my family lives, um, lives out there. And I spent, I was born in, in New York city and then, 
um, when I was two, my parents divorced and my mom took my brother, me and my brother to LA. And so we kind of grew up in between both. So Where I'm here. Are you? Um, we, I grew up in kind of like right on the border of Brentwood and Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I trained at UCLA, so I and I spent some years before I went to medical school out there. So I lived at Ninth in Idaho for five years, and I lived in West LA on a street called uh, Berkshire for four years. And yeah. what are you doing with your life? How old are you? What do you do? I, I'm 24 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I it's kind of funny. I what, I always thought that my career, and it's funny to say this because I am so young still. Um, so it's funny to like talk about like when I was young. Um, But I always, I always thought that I was going to be in the art world from like, even when I was first starting high school, uh, art history was my focus. And then I did a year and I did a year and one semester at Barnard. um, Mm -hmm. And I studied art history there. And then kind of in the beginning when I, right when I started Barnard, but um, kind of got progressively worse throughout that first year, I developed a really intense eating disorder. And um, I ended up taking a semester off after I thought that I could do my sophomore year. I did one semester there and then it got kind of um, got really bad. And so I took a semester off and moved back home to L.A. And I kind of never really um, I didn't think that I was like permanently leaving Barnard. I thought that I was going to go back. But during my time back here, I kind of like really delved into my own my healing and just what I was going through. I've always been a really kind of introspective person and not one to shy away from anything that I was going through. And so I really kind of um, took account of everything that was at play in what I was going through and decided that New York was not the environment that I should continue to be in at that stage of my life. And so I transferred to USC Mm -hmm. And I continued to study art history, um, got an internship at a contemporary art gallery, uh, graduated and fully was, I thought that I was going to go work in Sotheby's and be in the art sales world. It was what I was into. And I really, um, luckily with really good resources, my eating disorder got much, much better. Um, So I was like pretty much healthy again and was kind of ready to start my life in the art world. And then... Um, I decided after I graduated USC, my internship at the gallery had ended and the program that I was supposed to go do at Sotheby's, all of a sudden I had, it was a whole plan. And then all of a sudden um, the program that I was going to go do there was called the trainee program and it got dismantled. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) that was no longer happening for me. And I kind of, and at the same time that this was happening, I knew from even before I really started to heal in my eating disorder, I knew that I wanted to use my experience and kind of like the information that I had gleaned through like all of these amazing therapists that I had seen to, um, I wanted to use all of it to help other young people going through what I was going through and even um, with some different issues. Um, And I kind of, but I didn't know how that was going to work. And I, my therapists were like, that's great that you want to use what you've been through, but like, you're not healthy yet. So you can't do that. Mm. Um, and, but it was kind of always in the back of my mind. And so the Sotheby's thing fell through and I kind of, um, I asked my parents if it would be okay if I took some time just to kind of like be, because I had never through college, I had internships and I was always kind of like running and running. And even um, when I took the semester off to deal with my, Um, eating disorder I was going through a lot my mom still had she had cancer at the time 
And it was just always kind of like, I was in like a fight or flight mode Mm -hmm. type thing. And I really kind of, and I recognize this more now, but I needed time to just kind of be with myself as a like relatively healed person. I had never experienced myself as this like really kind of like strong, healthy young adult without kind of like this, like being in motion of like going towards some goal um, Mm -hmm. that was career oriented. And so I took this time and that's kind of like pretty like now and decided that I wanted to start this podcast. So here I am starting this podcast because I finally am like I've been here for about a year, but um, yeah. But and by here I mean like in a state of health where I'm able yeah. to not just have to focus on myself, but I can also kind of reach outward and use what I've yeah. learned to do other things. Um, and then in doing this podcast, it's been I've been working on it for a couple of months now, and I really had never thought about myself doing a career other than anything in art. That was always Mm -hmm. my thing. This kind Mm -hmm. of like interested mental health was always sort of like a side passion based on my own experience. Um, But even in just doing this for a couple months, I really had this kind of like transformative experience where I realized that um, this is more what I would like to do with my career and art Mm -hmm. can be a passion for me, but this is really what I'm meant to do. And so right now I'm currently in the process of applying for my MFT at USC. Oh, so good for you. This nice. is what I'm doing. My application's due on November 1st. So hopefully <laughs> that goes well. Great. So you finished college along the way. And I did. You're, um, did you get treatment at UCLA or did you work elsewhere? For, with no, the- I worked elsewhere. I had a, um, I went to, an, I briefly <laughs> went to an outpatient program in New York and I didn't really, they were, um, I don't know how much you know about like eating disorder specifically treatment programs, but they were doing um, a lot of like fear food exposure Mm. which to me was kind of um and they were using a lot of like scare tactic which program is it it was called balance by melanie rogers and Mm. it really didn't work for me and it's it's reputable they have a great like Mm -hmm. i don't know apparently a lot of people have gone through there and really had good Mm. results but for me it just wasn't gonna happen that way um Mm -hmm. and so i moved back to la and luckily i had really supportive parents um, mm-hmm. And they were very non-judgmental of what I was going through, and very communicative with me, um, mm-hmm. and were willing to kind of work with me to get to where I needed to be. And so I ended up kind of developing my own little team yep. of people. And so I had a therapist, I had a, a, a doctor, just like a GP who um, mm-hmm. specialized in dealing with people with eating disorders and anorexia. And mm-hmm. then I had this woman named Elise Resch, who. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a nutritionist, but she kind of developed this program called intuitive eating. And so that's what really, um, I stuck with that little team for, for a couple of years and it really got me through. Good for you. I'm pretty familiar with that work, but there are different approaches to it, as you say. And uh, I don't know the balance program, but it's not my specialty at this point. So I mean, I have, I always have teens I see in young adults who struggle with eating in a variety of ways, but it's not like I'm deep into that world right now. Yeah. How did, um, I want to ask how you <clears throat> got into what you do particularly <laughs> Absolutely. with just like adolescent, <clears throat> teen and adolescent mental health. How did you get into that? Uh, so, you know, everybody has a story and the stories are as detailed or as minimalist as you want to get. So I'll give you the 10,000 foot view and you tell me what you want more to hear. Okay, of. Perfect. Uh, I grew up in, in uh, just north of San Francisco, 10 miles, a town called San Rafael. And my dad was a pediatrician when I was a kid. And then when I was 
2003, he did a second training in psychiatry and child psychiatry. There's always been a huge need for child psychiatrists. It's always been underserved. And so a lot of the dinner table conversations that he brought home then from the time that I can remember the dinner table conversations were about families and problems in families and problems with kids. And, and of course, I'm one of five kids myself. I'm the youngest. And I saw a lot in my own family because every family has its struggles. And I also saw a lot with my peers. And I felt sometimes that I, that I understood what was going on with my peers. I also felt like I struggled with some of those same things, but I was able to discipline myself wherever that came from to do work and to get involved in school and to care about that. So I went on to college thinking that I would be a doctor. And then I hated the pre-med courses. And I think I hated the pre-med students even more than I hated the pre-med courses. It was so single focused and you had to give up on so much other stuff in your life, or at least I did in order to be successful in those classes. Mm. I was ultimately successful in those classes, but I didn't enjoy it. And I studied history as a major and I did the pre-med courses and I took a detour. I got involved in public health. I went to college at a time of HIV. I got very interested when HIV was sort of just being labeled HIV and being known about. I had friends who were affected. I got very involved in public health. I got my master's. I took a number of years off to work in the field. That's when I first lived in Los Angeles. And then I ended up um, you know, around 26, 27 thinking that I would like to do more I would like to have more power in the healthcare field. I think I'd like to see patients. I certainly want to be in a position where I have more mobility and I have uh, just more opportunity for myself. And so I decided I had the energy to go to medical school. I applied, I went when I was 29. And I thought I'd be a family doctor, honestly, or go into internal medicine or something and maybe pediatrics. But when I got to medical school, since I was a little older now, I think I started seeing patients around the age of 31, my third year of medical school. By now I was, I was uh, with the woman who was gonna become my wife. Uh, uh, who has become my wife. I was, again, the youngest of five. I'd seen a lot. I'd traveled around. I spoke a second language. There was a lot of things that I'd learned in the, in the past bunch of years. I was a fairly proficient guitar player. You know, I, I just was in an environment where people were sick and families were ailing. I felt like I understood their pain and their stories a little bit better than most, not all, of my peers. Mm. And it was natural for me to be in those environments where difficult news was being expressed and I liked spending time with people and I felt that I wanted to have an opportunity to work in a field where I could spend time with people and I've always aligned very closely with the struggles of development you know because we all go through that and from the age of 12 13 until 25 26 when I made the choice to go to school medical school I think I, I understood those struggles so I decided I'd like to work with adolescents and I decided to go into psychiatry. And the other part of this is I'm a public health person and I spent a decade doing public health education and not much has been done in mental health. You're contributing to that now through your podcast. But in most okay. cases, people haven't been talking about mental illness. People haven't been open about it. It's very shameful for many people, very embarrassing. There's a lot we don't know and there's a lot we can do. And so I became captivated with the idea of well, what it would be like to be a physician who could spend time with patients, A, and on the other side of things, become a public educator, become someone who writes, thinks, talks, shares, teaches. And wouldn't that be a nice way to combine uh, mental health and public health? And not many people are doing it. So there's a real opportunity. So, you know, partly uh, based on what I thought I was good at, partly based upon my own interests, partly based upon my upbringing, and that has led to the career that I've had now. So after my training, which I didn't finish till I was 30, 38. So it takes a while, you know, if you go late, it always takes a while, but there's, there's a long path of college and pre-med courses and medical school and residency and fellowship. But once you're done, then you have some choices. 
And so I've been making those choices ever since, which I'm happy to talk about if you want. Yeah, definitely. I want to know um, kind of first, as you said, that even now mental health is something that um, <clears throat> is starting like the dialogue around it is starting to increase, but it's just kind of now starting to increase. And even um, I always kind of like when I was first, the first thing that really struck me and in, in wanting to go into um, uh, like educating about this or talk, just making it more of a conversation was the fact that I kind of looked, I looked back on my experience in, um, in high school and middle school and realized that in my human development courses, I had learned like, how to drink responsibly in college and how to come out to my parents if I were anything but heterosexual, like cisgendered female. And um, I learned about all of these things, but the only food related thing that I had learned about was that kind of outdated like pyramid of nutrition that like shouldn't right. be allowed anymore. And I didn't know anything about eating disorders. I knew nothing. And meanwhile, I was at this all girls school in Los Angeles where like most of the girls probably were developing, developing eating disorders. And I really realized that um, mental health is not something that is really talked about when you're, when you need it most, when you're a developing young person. And it's not something that, um, is educated on at all. And, but now, um, even now that's getting better, but I want to know what that was like for you making that decision to get into that when it was even less of a conversation. Like how did, did you go to Marlboro? I went to Marlboro. Okay. But those schools are pretty rarefied environments and, and it's yeah. pretty progressive anyway that they were teaching you some of that stuff. Yeah. I think one of the, uh, I'll get your question in a second, but one of the, the bigger issues that I think is a problem in schools. And one of the things I have been working on as much as I can in my capacity is what we teach young people and when, and that we don't teach a lot of skills that we know are very helpful to strengthen them against mental illness, things like communication skills, things like good habit formation. You learned a little bit about nutrition. It wasn't terribly helpful. Yeah. I actually had a, a year long course in home economics when I was a freshman in high school, which I took to meet girls, but it turned out to be one of the best courses I took in high school because they taught me how to cook and I'm actually a pretty decent cook. And I learned how to follow a recipe back then. I learned about combinations of foods. I learned about food safety. It's actually really helpful. They probably taught us the food pyramid too. They didn't teach us about <laughs> eating disorders that I can remember. Yeah. But here's an example. One of the most important things that we do in a place that we spend a third of our lives is asleep. And I don't know if you've ever had even an hour of education on sleep, but most students haven't. Even None. in their AP psychology class, they get nothing. We know so much about sleep now. We know about how to establish proper sleep. We know that sleep prevents or at least wards off mental illness. We know that sleeping at the right time versus the wrong time. We know about the, the effect of substances like alcohol and marijuana and other substances on sleep. And there's so much that we could be providing for people in that way in curriculum on neuroscience and the brain and sleep and all the rest of it. So there's a huge opportunity there. And, and most of how we've done drug education and sex education and even driver's education hasn't been very effective in this country and has often made things worse. So mm -hmm. there's a huge opportunity there. Now back to your question. What was your question, Carol? Um, my question was how, well, now I want to ask you all about this, about the sleeping, because you also wrote a book <clears throat> okay. on pediatric sleep, sleep, didn't you? Yeah. 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 So I want to ask you about that for sure. But um, my question was how, I mean, it's kind of easy for me to make this decision. Like, oh, I want to get into mental health just because now it is such a conversation, but I want to know. Mm -hmm. and oh, there are, back, back then. Yeah. I want to know like how it was back then when you were kind of deciding to go down this path that wasn't really paved yet. Well, I think that it was easier for me on the one hand, because my father had become a psychiatrist. I think that the hardest thing for me about choosing psychiatry over other medical specialties was that I really liked the identity, once I developed it, of being a doctor. Mm -hmm. I liked 
having a stethoscope. I liked having tools. I liked having tests to order. I liked putting my hands on people's bodies. I liked putting needles into people. I, I don't mean that in a creepy way. I just, <laughs> I liked the mechanics of being a doctor. Yeah. And there's also a certain amount of identity and macho that goes along with that. And uh, I don't mean male macho, just like I can do this. It's like when you know how to, I learned how to change the oil in my car when I was 22. And like, that was very powerful. Like I can mm -hmm. change my own oil, you know, these kind of things become really exciting the more you learn. And giving that up was a, a bit difficult for me, but I felt like most people actually give up most of that stuff unless you stay in surgery. Most everybody else ends up doing more cerebral work in medicine. It really becomes as you, as you get better and better and more experienced, it's more about how you think about problems and, and what you do with your conversation and your education of patients than with any needle or stethoscope. So I still do some of those things. Of course, I still order labs. I still look at blood work and all that kind of thing. I listen to people's chests and take their blood pressure every day because the medicines I use. But making the decision, that, that was a hard part for me. Mm -hmm. Am I losing my identity as a doctor? And psychiatry hasn't always had a great reputation in medicine. So there are people who would downplay it. And mm. where I trained, I trained at UCLA, psychiatry is, you know, it's a top 10 program in psychiatry. And so I always felt as a trainee, highly respected when I was labeled the psychiatrist. I never felt like they were putting me down uh, or, you know, what are you doing here? You, you don't know anything. I felt like we need you help us out. So that was also empowering, you know, the idea that I, I was actually providing something that other medical services and patients really needed. And, you know, there's, there's been a conversation about mental health for a long time. It's not as open as it is now, and it's probably less open now than it will be down the road. So it was moving in the right direction. But I think having the exposure and I think feeling like, you know, the question my mom asked me at that time when I was choosing my specialty, which is a question I've often asked myself at different times in my life, where do you want to be in 10 years? You know, what do you want to be doing? And did I want to be, you know, putting needles into people or did I want to be talking with them on the worst day of their life? And I chose the latter. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that you did. I think that, um, and especially going into eventually um, psychiatry for particularly uh, like young, young people, I think is so important. And like, I don't know, I think. Yeah, there's a huge need. Yeah, well, it's underserved for sure. And that was part of the reason, you know, I, I really like working with adults and I still see plenty of adults. And you can relate to adults so easily because you're an adult. And so the idea of working with adults was was relatively easy compared to working with children and their mm -hmm. families and because children are still in development the disorders are hard to see could someone have seen that your disorder was brewing when you were 12 13 10 maybe you know uh, probably someone who was paying very close attention uh, could have maybe not could have been prevented maybe maybe not but there's a lot of unpredictability in children and, and things are still moving forward and you're not sure what it's going to become sometimes. And irritability, for example, which is an extraordinarily common symptom of young people, can result or be a symptom of anything. Right. So, you know, it can be a mood disorder, it can be anxiety disorder, it can be an eating disorder, it could be just problems at home, problems at school, adjustments to this or that. It could be a million different reasons that those things happen, ADHD. Mm. So it, it, it presents a, a difficult puzzle and more importantly, than liking kids and adolescents and young adults if you go into this work is liking their parents because you really spend a lot of time with their parents and the parents often have a lot of struggles you know their own and how to raise children and this is another area we don't get trained in we know a lot about how to raise kids in a manner that helps them not only physically but also mentally 
we know how to help raise kids in a way that the kids are much less likely to become obese as adults or diabetic or have hypertension, much less likely to use substance or have, or have early pregnancy, much, much more likely to do better in school, do better on their SATs. There are actually parenting techniques that help with all of that, yet we don't teach that until a parent is in trouble. So right. why, don't, why don't we teach that stuff in school or in college or in high school? Or, you know, 51% of Latina teens in America get pregnant. 51% of Latina teens get pregnant. Well, some are going to have a baby, some are not. But those who are going to have a baby, they could sure benefit from knowing this kind of stuff so that the, that the in not all cases, but in some cases, the mistakes that led to them having a pregnancy early don't get repeated. Right. Yeah. I think that, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely something that's really wild to think about. And it's interesting that you say, um, like that you, you need to like their parents and you need to, to like, cause they are very involved in the, in, in the child's development, not only in the parental decisions that they're making, but also just their behaviors. I was going to say, like, it must be so difficult also with being a child psychiatrist and like kind of recognizing things like when you're seeing them in the, in your, um, in your, like in the, in your office, because like I saw, a therapist when I was very, very young, but like they didn't know that like, I don't know, maybe like when I like saw my mom look at herself in the mirror and kind of make a comment about her body that that was like, and that's not like in any way she, I doubt she she even remembers that. No, it's just like something that my little brain like noticed. And then there you go. I'm like off to the races with this kind of like construct of how I'm thinking about my body. And, um, there's there's so much there's so much less control I feel like because with an adult you're not worried about like them going home and having like their brain be molded by these like kind of like hero figures that they have in their lives so yeah it's Mm -hmm. it's really an interesting you're getting it not only from your mom but you're seeing it in society you're seeing it in every advertisement that you look at every tv show you look at every newscaster you look at is sculpted to within an inch of their life they've got all the makeup all the clothes all of this so media has an impact how kids talk to each other has an impact you know what's seen is popular and then how that gets transmitted down so there's a lot of influences on young people and recognizing that is important it's another area we don't teach kids much about is is uh you know media understanding oh my gosh yeah getting a sense of what we call media literacy understanding that the media has an impact on how we think how we look how we dress how we behave and it's really all about profit and corporations and they'll follow any trend if it's hip to be obese then they'll make everything you know, about obese people. If it's hip to be tan, they'll make everything about being tan. You know, if it's hip to be thin as it is now, then they'll make everything about thinness. And that's what happens. And kids are very influenced by this. And we have to have a critical eye because there's so many ads that we, we can look at any ad and we can find the flaws and find the, find the, the pressure that kids feel from it. Totally. And it's becoming the, I think that this is definitely something that I want to talk to you about as well, where the, with, in this era of like TikTok, and YouTube and Instagram, um, kids are becoming more and more like kind of at the helm, like in control and at the helm of the content that's being presented to other kids. So now it's not just like these people kind of sitting around in a room, these adult people deciding like what to print on the advertisement. It's these kids in their bedrooms, like displaying really problematic behavior and broadcasting it for a bunch of other kids to see. So there's, it's just kind of like mayhem going on in terms of content that these, that these kids are, are kind of like able to consume on a, on a really rapid and constant basis. Absolutely. Hero. When I was about 15, uh, I, I came upon a Playboy magazine. I think a friend gave it to me. And I kept that Playboy magazine for five years, you know, under my bed, wherever it was. 
now I'm not a, I, I think of myself as an enlightened male. Uh, <laughs> I, I try not to be sexist, but I was still attracted, uh, still am attracted to naked women. I can't help it, right? But if, but if you're 13 years old, and 12 years old, and you have the access to pornography that is online right now. How do these kids even leave their room? I, yeah, I can't tell totally. you the number of young men I have, young male patients who are 17 to 22 who have like, sexual function disorders because they're watching so much pornography. They then don't get very excited when they're with somebody because they're mm -hmm. used to such a high level of so much stimulation coming at them all the time. Of course, they have anxiety and other reasons they're seeing me too. But these things are you know, there's something good about the mystery of some of these things and not being yeah. overly inundated. And I think our kids have an unfortunate opportunity to be overwhelmed by this. And you lock a kid in the room or let them go into the room with their laptop or their phone even. And there's an awful lot of exposure, whether it's violence, racism, uh, sexism, you know, pornography, there's drugs, there's so much stuff. And we have to get a handle on that because that has an influence on kids that is profound and it can change their brain and the way they function. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like, just with, with your kids, you have kids that are around <clears throat> my age. And I think yes. that we are, I consider myself so lucky to be among the last generation of kids that was raised with like VHS, like we would like put a VHS in the TV and like That's right. the internet was kind of coming. I like got an email. And then when I turned like maybe 15, I asked my mom for permission to create a Facebook page that like mm -hmm. I had six friends and they were all blood relatives of mine. Like I really yeah. wasn't on social <laughs> media until I kind of um, was at the age where I could understand like what it was. And I think mm -hmm. that now um, I'm somebody that's even like right now hyper aware of my activity on the internet. I'm like, constantly kind of like taking breaks from my Instagram and like really monitor. I'm like really not on any other social media platforms other than that. And it, it really does cause me a lot of anxiety and I'm somebody who's lucky to be aware of the anxiety that it causes me. Like when I'm on Instagram and I notice myself comparing my body to other women's bodies or when I notice the way that my life looks according to these little pictures next to somebody else's. And I, I can see, can feel that taking effect more than it, more than is healthy for it too, I immediately kind of step away and I consider myself super lucky to be the kind of introspective person that can recognize that. And I can't imagine, um, not only for like other people my age and for adults, but like for young kids that have these, have access to these platforms who have no way of recognizing, they don't have the vocabulary or like wherewithal to recognize the effect that it's having on them. Um, right. It's really dangerous. And I also think that the internet, I definitely want to talk to you about this too, because I know that you um, at Lango and you like train in adolescent, like child adolescent right, right, mental right. health. How are you having, with this knowledge of like how much um, of what is affecting these kids is shifting based on the internet and apps, how are you kind of having to like restructure that that training? Because you've been in this for much longer than Instagram has existed or TikTok. So sure. what is happening right now in, the, in terms of um, the training that's going on and how you guys are approaching all of this? Yeah. So I think part of what this is about in terms of training doctors and psychiatrists and adolescent psychiatrists and child psychiatrists is the idea of what kind of media rules or what kind of media scaffolding in your house makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the issue is companies are not going to self-regulate because they have no interest in self-regulating. So they're going to keep putting out as much content as possible. Occasionally they'll get stung or sued for some reason, but that would be a small price to pay for all of the profit and advertising and everything else. I mean, Facebook and all those things, we can't 
they have to regulate themselves to some degree, but then the government will have to monitor certain things too. And there's, you're starting to see some of that, a little bit more self-regulation, but they're making so much money, even if they get sued or fined, it's, it's a small affair. In the training of, of doctors, what we need to do is help them to work with parents to set up good sense media practices. And I have a little phrase. I say, this is why God created the, the fruit bowl, you know, to put your phone in the fruit bowl when you get home from school, mm. to get your you know, homework done, to have dinner with the family without a phone, first work, then play. Kids aren't the only ones susceptible to this. Parents are too. And parents are allowed to do things that kids aren't allowed to do. Of course, they drive cars, they use ATM machines, they do all sorts of things kids can't do. But if you want to teach your kids you need a role model for your kids right. so that means parents shouldn't be having phones at the table if they don't want the kids having phones at the table and that means parents should you know have some some very separate time when they're not hooked in as well but parents own the phone parents own the devices the doors stay open the devices should all be in public places once you get a phone that goes away then they have access 24 7 you have to limit that it's not very popular to limit that as a parent you don't come out smelling like a rose because your kids are angry because every other parent is doing something different or letting their kids do things and we can't be accountable for how other parents raise their kids and the kids want it now mm -hmm. so there's a lot of conflict and this is a negotiation very frequently. It's best when it's done in advance so mm -hmm. that kids know what to expect and when parents are consistent when they abide by their rules. Kids these days, there's an organization called Wait Until Eighth, which is about waiting to give your child a cell phone until they're in eighth grade. You know, to me, and now I think that's certainly better than doing it in fifth grade or seventh right. grade, but wait until eighth. Who needs a cell phone at eighth? grade who needs a cell phone in ninth 10th 11th 12th the only reason you need it is really for social networking or gameplay that's what kids are using it for do they totally. how often does a child make a 911 call that's legitimate or do they need to call their parent because they can't get somewhere in fact if anything i think we're crippling our kids a little bit more by giving them constant access to their parents so they don't learn to solve problems on their own they end up mom i i got a d on my assignment what do i do you know in the Absolutely. old days you had to kind of suffer through that a little bit reckon with that and then maybe you ultimately, you know, got home at dinner, but then you'd had some time to think about it. You'd talk to your friends about it. You'd problem solve a little bit. And now maybe you were ready to have a, a more constructive conversation with your family who has experience and can help you with that. And I think that while it's very satisfying for parents to have that 24-7 linkage and to feel like they're connected to their kids and they can walk them through these things, you really got to work hard as a parent if you're going to give your kid a phone to set up some good parameters so that the kids still develop without over-dependence, without... Uh, wasting all their time on the phone playing games, put their head up. You know, I could go on and on, but you know, we, we've taken kids out of the natural world. Mm -hmm. Gym has decreased in schools, except for in private schools. Uh, kids don't sit in the dirt and play that much anymore. And and there's so much about boredom. Kids aren't bored anymore. Anytime you're bored, you pick up your phone and you get onto a game. And it's great to be bored. That's how. You know, how do you think the Beatles came up with their songs? I think they turned on a computer and looked up lyrics. They they sat around, you know, with their heads on each other's shoulders and said, what, you know, what are we going to do? What, what are we, let, let's go somewhere. Yeah, totally. And I think that it's hard um, now, like there, I think that there are um, a lot more when I was a child, there were, it was easier to recognize, like there were some kids even when I was growing up who like loved computer games um, and loved like, I don't know, they're Nintendo and they were just kind of more uh, naturally uh, took a liking to like the digital world. Yep. Um, whereas like my brother and I, I grew up riding horses. I still ride horses. I was always like at the stables. It's all I wanted to do. And when I wasn't there and I was at home, I was running around in the backyard, like pretending to be a horse jumping over <laughs> yeah. things until I was like 16. It's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and my brother always was just, um, 
he's kind of always I don't know if this has he's uh uh my brother's like really high functioning Asperger's and his kind of like monomania has always been um music music like he's an amazing musician he spent all of his time playing the guitar playing the drums he's just like so amazing at it he was here last night playing guitar and he's just like it's insane to hear him play he's a master and it's all he ever did he didn't want my mom i remember when um i forget what it was it was like a an xbox some like game came out that like everyone was getting our next door neighbors had it it was like the big thing and my mom got us one and we did it she i don't remember this i think i was too young but she she says that i think it's like a proud parent thing of hers that like we got on it and we played it once and then my brother and I didn't like um, something that it wasn't letting us do. And so we had like sidewalk chalk and we went outside and like drew the game on the sidewalk and did it on the sidewalk. <laughs> there you go. So, you like, made a better game. Yeah, we made yeah. a better game because like why would we do this thing on a screen that was like making rules for us when we can do our own thing? And right. so I think that's um, the beauty of that is kind of slipping away because now I think technology is so pervasive. It's no longer just kind of like the novel Xbox that comes out, it's everything. And so I think it's harder to recognize when your child is more um, in like naturally is more into like nature and being outside because it's, it's becoming less and less of like an option for them. Um, And there's always something better. This is the FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out. There's always something better, no matter how good I am. There's always someone prettier, always someone taller, always someone stronger, always someone smarter. And it doesn't help us. I mean, a little bit of competition is great, you know, because it spurs us on. That's great. You know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And back to that analogy, they were, they were battling each other, the Beatles and the Beach Boys. But, but at some point it's destructive and there's a limit to it. What do you think about, um, like, cause I know that at home you can kind of set up parameters and with like, I think it's an amazing idea of like kind of putting your phone in one place. I like hate, yeah, the, the phone at the table thing, like really has always freaked me out. And just like the phone, I now see like, I have friends with like little siblings who like are glued to their, they're never without the phone. It's insane. And, um, but I think it's hard because I've talked to like some parents about it and whatever. And they're kind of like, well, it's so hard to tell them that they can't have their technology because they need it for school because now schools make the kids have laptops. Even when I was in like ninth grade, like my school gave me a computer and I had to do all of my assignments online. What do you think about, about that, about schools kind of like from the now even younger ages, kind of like implementing this like handheld technology, like iPads and laptops into the education of the kids? Well, so the, 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 the risk of being too much back to the land or back to nature and not being on technology is that you don't want to lose touch with what's happening in society and you want to right. stay on the curve and you don't want to be a Neanderthal. So I'm not encouraging families to go live Abandoned. in the woods and totally unplug. <laughs> yeah. uh, there are times to unplug. I think it's great to unplug uh, school nights if you can for as long as possible so that you know Sunday night or Monday night until Thursday night, you have no devices, for example, no television when the kids are young, particularly more reading, more time together, more singing, all those kind of things. But yeah, you, you definitely have to appreciate that schools are going to use technology. Kids need to have good keyboarding skills. That's where the world has headed. And that's where we are. And we're going to keep going that way for a while. So I think the kids need to learn these things. And I think you just have to understand what your kids are up against and have limits. And the, the reality is if you're going to give your kids a computer and they're going to have access to all of that, then the schools are also going to put online what the homework is and the parents then have to get online, see what the homework is, know what their kids are working on, know when they're working on homework and know when they're playing and to have some limits around that sort of thing. So I, I think that, for example, homework is really done well at the dining room table. If you have a computer, you can put your laptop there, your iPad there, 
you can have a computer in the living room or the family room. Kids can work on that and parents can be around as much as possible or some adult or some older sibling or some aunt or uncle can be around. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No worries. Too overhead, I apologize. But, it's okay. Uh, but you know, having, having that sort of access around where kids can, can be supervised and monitored and you know how much time they're playing essentially more or less and you know how much time they're doing the work. And it's really easy to multitask. By that I mean it's easy to think you can multitask, but none of us is a really good multitasker. You can't have yeah. two conversations at once. You can't work on two projects at once. You can have different screens open and this and that. But you know, when kids are working, parents can also say, you turn off your email, you turn off your Facebook, you turn off your alerts and notifications if you're on the computer for work. If it's play, it's a different thing. And those are really good habits for life because those things are very effective for kids as they age. When I am writing, you know, I've written some books and I've written a lot of articles. And when I write, I don't keep my email open. I don't have my notifications dinging me constantly because I'm distracted. And every time I get distracted, I either want to respond to what's there or I have to go back and spend a minute or two getting back into where I was. So I'll give myself a two-hour block where I'm just not available. And that's fine. You yeah. know, there's, there's just no reason everybody has to have access to me 24-7. You know, nothing's going to happen. You know, the world's a very safe place. If, mm-hmm. if my kids need me, they'll, they'll figure it out. If they've had to learn to be resourceful, that's part of what you're teaching your kids. Yeah, completely. And then in terms of like with – I know that um, – you can set like you can set up very healthy parameters for like computer time and phone time and all of that. But what do you think about um, like obviously we've we've said the internet is a very scary place and social media is really scary. And even um, like when I was younger, there was like I don't know like it, there was the fear of like meeting strangers on like chat rooms. Like you don't really know who anyone is, and it's it is a really no, scary thing. And it's also kind of um, I know that it must be a struggle as a parent like even with like progressive, like more like woke parents about like allowing their children to have their privacy from a very young age and kind of like allowing them to have their freedom. But then how do you grapple with that? And then like monitoring what they're doing and like looking at their conversations on the internet. What do you think about that in terms of like controlling what your children are doing when they have that phone time? Because it's like, it's causing like such great, like I know that there's with, there was that documentary, um, something I forget something in Daisy it's about just basically like these these it's about these girls it had nothing to do with social media but it's about like teen depression and I know that online um with like these teens meeting in chat rooms and not knowing each other and then they get into talking about this like really dark stuff at a really young age and there are all these topics that are just like I think in the real world translate into very dangerous mental health issues for really young people what do you think about parents monitoring um their kid like what their kids are doing and who they're talking to like how do you even know you know yeah so this is a question that i don't think i can give a sweeping global response to there are some kids for whom this is a big concern i think though that when you give your child a phone particularly if they're young that having things like find my phone or life 360 these programs that tell you where the phone is Mm -hmm. so that's usually where your child is are a good idea and I think that there's actually, I think husbands and wives and family members having that thing is, is kind of useful anyway. You know where people are at. If someone gets into an accident, you know, if you're going to have the phone, you may as well use it to its healthy capacity. My entire far, family tracks me. <laughs> yeah. And, and in fact, yeah. all of our, the, 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 I have two kids and my wife and I, we're all on Life360 and we all know yeah. where each other is. And yeah. I have a daughter in Colorado. I have a son in the UK. And it's great to just know where people are at because mm-hmm. – you know, can I call them? Where? And it's not like I'm, I almost never look unless I'm 
having a hard time reaching them or I'm wondering, uh, you know, if someone's been on a long drive and I haven't heard from them in a few hours, I might, you know, and I, I know that I might look for them. But but that's that's all that is. And that's a nice little safety feature. Other than that, do you do you have privacy software or spyware on your child's phone so that yeah. you can look at their texts and you can look at their emails? I think you do if you're really concerned. And I think you tell your kids. I don't think you you are deceitful about it. I think that's the mm-hmm. thing. You have to remember that under 18, you can't legally get a phone or have a phone plan. And even over 18 costs a lot of money to have one of these things. You, yeah. you, the phone costs, I don't know, what is it? You know, 40 bucks, 60 bucks a month, 90 bucks a month, whatever it is. It's a lot of money to maintain these packages with all the access you want to the internet and everything. So I think that kids have to understand it's a privilege. Kids have to understand the parents are paying for it. Kids have to understand that the parents own the phone. It's mm. not a right. It's a privilege. And we're going to give you this and you're going to learn how to use it. And we're going to have rules around it. And I'm going to stick by those rules. And we can call it your phone. But don't think for a minute that it's truly your phone. It's really my phone because I am paying for it. Mom and I, dad and I. And this is this is how it works. This is a gift that you get to use. But you're borrowing this gift. And we'll call it yours. But it really, at the end of the day, you don't get this without us approving it. And so we have to pay for it. We have to monitor it. We have to manage it. And you're going to learn how to use it responsibly. And we're going to start by having access to everything that you go. And we have some software on there that's going to show us what you're doing. Because you know what? I know you wouldn't do this, but some kids do get into trouble with their phones. And they, totally. they get on and they, they do things that you wouldn't expect. So I think that if your child is fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, that's a very reasonable thing to do. Well, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, you know, it's a very reasonable thing to do. You get to middle school and you get to high school, then I think parents need to establish trust with their kids. And I don't think that they need to have any kind of spyware on the phone at all, unless they're concerned that their child's using it or misusing it. But okay. I think they have to teach a lot of these rules. And, and even in fourth grade, I'm not saying that because most fourth grades can't even conjure up the idea of posting a nude photo or something like that. But, you know, I know a lot of kids who are like perfectly high functioning, beautiful, wonderful kids who are 11 or 12 at 13 and they send nudies of themselves and they do it because somebody asks them some creep online, whether totally. it's someone their age or someone older and they do it. And so they need help with that. And, and to that end, I would say spyware is less my interest mm-hmm. than having them use the phones or the objects in the area where the parent can supervise at a time when the parent can supervise. So it's not that you have the phone here, take unlimited access. It's you have the phone and you can use it these hours of the day. And I'm usually around when that's happening, or if I'm not around, it, no more than 10 or 15 minutes goes by when I'm not around mm-hmm. so that I'm just a part of the world of how this thing gets used. Totally. I don't think kids need phones at school. I don't see a single reason why a child needs a phone at school. It's a huge distraction. Most yeah. kids are getting notified 50, 100 times, 200 times a day, buzzing in their pocket. Who needs that distraction? That's like the thing coming up on the email. So we've become a little too liberal, a little too fast. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's not helpful for kids. And I, yeah. I think that most kids will be fine with it. Honestly, I think most kids are going to be fine, but I think some kids won't be. And I think those kids are going to have more troubles than they would have had. And the phone's going to be a part of why they're having those troubles. So I think yeah. we need to do more to help them. But I'm not suggesting we be draconian and we, you know, become a, a communist country and spy on everybody. I don't think that, you know, being a McCarthyism is the answer. But I think that for some kids, we're going to need that level of, of uh, supervision. Yeah, totally. Um, just to kind of shift gears a little bit, I want to talk to you about, um, what's going on right now in the world with COVID and Mm -hmm. this kind of new, um, restriction in terms of socializing that I think must be, um, so kind of detrimental to, uh, children and adolescents and I mean, everybody, but especially 
during these during this age or these these ages when um you're really learning how to socialize and be a part of a community and a group in school in physical school and you're learning and like after school activities you're learning how to socialize and how to exist in the world as a physical being with other people and like problem solve and it's so important and um with all this online school i have every young kid that i know is at home and doing online mm -hmm. school and their school is right. happening on zoom and like even if there's kind of like a like, okay, it's meant like if the parent is doing a good job of like mandated school time when it's the Zoom on the like, there's like all of there are all these like stimuli everywhere else in the house. And like, even if whether it's like on their phone or wherever, like, it doesn't even matter if like the dog is walking around or like mom is in the kitchen cooking or there's another kid doing something else. I think it's kind of impossible to, to exist in your school community environment at home. How are you seeing that affect? the kids that you see or just kids in general? So I think this is an exceptional time. This is a one in a century, if not one in three century kind of event that we're going through. And so we're learning as we go. And I think the history books, 50 years, 20 years, 10 years, maybe from now, we're going to say we could have handled it better this way. And next mm -hmm. time we should go like this instead of like that. But when you have so many people getting sick and so easily and the sickness can be isn't but can be for maybe five percent of people remarkably severe i think you have to respond and so we've come up with lots of different ways to handle this i think that for people who are uh well developed that going online is very reasonable and mm -hmm. i think college students as much of a drag as it is to spend a year or a semester uh, doing your college online i think it makes a lot of sense i think that that people, we're just going to save lives that way we are. And we're going to save a lot of concerns. You know, it's, it's not going to be fun for those students. They're going to miss out on a lot of activities and parties and different events. But I think it makes a good deal of sense to do it that way for the moment. But younger kids, as you say, children, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm moving around my house a little bit to my dog is causing a little bit of problems. <laughs> I'm, I'm home alone with her. And <laughs> she needs, she has some needs now and again, so I'm letting her <laughs> run out. But uh, I think that and that and that's a that's a funny thing, right? I'm at home working. I mean, I don't I I I, mean, I live in the in the village and I have a house upstate, and so I've been up here upstate most most of the time during mm -hmm. the the time of COVID because I can be and I, I have good internet access and there's nothing I can do in the office unless they need me in the hospital, and that happens infrequently. So I can get there within an hour and a half, and, and that's the way it goes. But I, I think that this is caused all sorts of disruption then and changes in our schedules and in our lives. For young people, I think it's more of a developmental issue when you're in, again, junior, senior, high school, sophomore, high school. I, I, it's a drag, but it's okay. But, mm -hmm. you know, kindergarten, preschool, where socialization is really important, uh, second, third, fourth grade, where you're learning how to do things, or kids, you described your brother, people who struggle with social skills, who yeah. really need that interaction and who do terribly in a social interaction on a computer. It's so much harder for them than it is face-to-face, mm -hmm. -face, and face-to-face -face is really hard. Yeah. So I think that there are some populations we need to be particularly sensitive about, and for parents, it's hard because they have to work and they have to do their job. And yes, they'd be a teacher at the same time, and how do they guarantee socialization? If you've got siblings, it's easier. If you don't, then I think you want to expand your pod if you're at home and you want to identify a group of families that treat the, the infection like you do, mm -hmm. and that they're going to then be willing to get together and to have group dinners and group 
sports and those kinds of things because kids need that stuff. They need that socialization. And it's awkward, but I think this is another area where parents have to work hard to help their kids with this. And that's just one of the gifts of being a parent. You know, you have to be creative and nimble and you got to come up with new ways of doing things. Yeah. So I think that's, that's just, this is just that time and, and this is what has to happen now. So you're doing like telemedicine with your patients? Yeah, because our system, we were already doing telemedicine at NYU. Maybe we started that about 10 years ago in very mm-hmm. remote parts of New York where there aren't child psychiatrists. So we've been providing telemedicine for a long time. We expanded that service about three or four years ago, maybe five years ago, actually, to make it a quite a bit bigger. We serve a lot of counties. And then we had the system set up. So then it wasn't very hard for us to just to incorporate that into all of our regular patients. Most patients don't want to come in. They want to get on the subway if they don't have to. Yeah. And particularly when this started in March, April, you know, New York was a hotspot. We were, you know, we lost like 30,000 people. I mean, it was, it was really severe. Everybody in the hospital had COVID. So we didn't, we didn't want anybody on the street if they didn't have to be. So patients started that way. And then I would say for the majority, it's worked out. I mean, mm. certainly it's not very satisfying to do an evaluation face-to-face on, yeah. or, you know, on, the, on the screen for a new patient. But for a lot of the patients who you've been working with for a long time, who know you, they come in and out of treatment, whether it's medicine or therapy or both, you, know, you can do, I think, well enough for the moment this way. It won't be this way forever. Yeah. But I think some of it will stay. Some patients have really appreciated it because it's very inconvenient for them to get to their appointments. It's not just a 45-minute appointment. It's three hours because by the time they commute back and forth and you know all the rest of it. So some patients are thrilled with it. Some My patients who are quite ill, who are chronically ill, for them, it's been, a, I think, a detriment because even though we can stay in touch it's different when you can see how they're dressed and you can see how they smell and you can see how they're caring for themselves. You know, by that, I mean, are they showering and are they, you know, getting out of bed easily and how does their body move when they're lethargic and you just don't get the 3d feeling on zoom or whatever profile you're using for patient care. Oh my God. But yes, we've been doing it and it's worked out. Yeah. Even, um, I remember there are like summers that I would go traveling and I would have to do, um, like FaceTime with my nutritionist and my therapist. Mm -hmm. And it was just, not only could they not like see my body and see how Mm -hmm. I was treating myself very visibly, that -hmm. was an obvious issue, but also I, I always had a really hard time and still do, um, like connecting. Cause there I'm, I'm definitely a very emotional person and especially having to do with like, my eating disorder and just any mental health, anything that I've gone through, I'm the kind of person that'll like go in and sit in front of my nutritionist or therapist. And just like, if I'm having one of those days, I'll just like, even being in front of them, I'll just break down and start crying. And I think I've always had a real, and I love that it, it is, has been so important to my healing, but I on the phone or on zoom, am a different person to these, like my they both are just like won't even they don't even want to take do like schedule facetimes with me because it's just i mean they do but like it's so it's kind of like we both recognize it as really ineffective because i kind of just i'm like i'm good i'm fine mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. i'm eating what like whatever i just am i'm kind of like shut down and there's this like barrier yeah. that for me is very very apparent and it makes a huge impact are you noticing that with with your patients? yes with yeah, with some. I, I think that, again, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been at NYU for 15 years. So although, of course, I always have a flux of patients that come in and out, I think I've seen so many people or known so many of them for so long 
that I have a pretty good sense of them and they of me, even if we have to be on screens for a while. Because, yeah. you know, when, when you're a psychiatrist, you tend to deal with people who are pretty sick. It's, it's, it, there's some percentage of worried well, you know, people who have some anxiety, but they function at a super high level or a little depression now and again. But most of my patients tend to have more severe problems. They're very disruptive. They're autistic. Mm-hmm. They, they have uh, schizophrenia. They have bipolar disorder. They have severe depression. They have, you know, whatever it is, Tourette's that's very yeah. bad or OCD that's in the way. So yeah. for those patients, there's usually an established relationship that's a big part of the treatment. And uh, because of the many other things that I do in my career, I haven't, I would say in the last year and a half, probably haven't taken on a lot of new patients. I probably took on 10 new patients in the last year and a half. So mm. that maybe 15. So that means that I tend to know, I have never known my patients pretty well, but right. but face-to-face right now, because of the regulations of our hospital, if I want to do a face-to-face evaluation, I have to not only wear a mask, but I have to wear a face shield yeah. and the patient has to wear a mask. So that's a weird way to do totally. an evaluation. Whereas yeah. if I do it online, I can actually get to know someone like you and I are getting to know each other. And while it's not perfect, then I can't really see how you're dressed other than the shirt you're wearing. You know, the fact is that that we're getting along pretty well today and communicating pretty well. And I'm not getting everything out of you that I would get if we were face to face. Of course, I'm missing things. Yeah. But I, I, this might be better than being behind a face shield and a mask, even if I could see the you in the office. I wouldn't be able to, you know, pick up on a lot of things with all that gear on me anyway. Totally. Yeah. I can't even imagine even now that um like in, in LA, at least, like restaurants are starting to open, but you're kind of like, you're the waiters are like having these like face shields on. And, the, and it's just, I, remember my, I talked to my mom about it and she was like, yeah, it's just like so weird because you go to have these kind of like normal social interactions with like not only the person you're eating with, but like with the other people. And it's kind of impossible because it feels like we're living in this like post-apocalyptic, like dystopian world where like so you're like being, you're interacting with like robot, like androids. And it's just like so, so strange. So yeah, I, I, I honestly hadn't thought about that. I have talked to my sister who obviously like she'll send me photos of herself in like the mask and the shield because she's performing surgery. But I, I didn't yeah. know that it was also, um, yeah. With psychiatry, yeah, that I can't imagine, especially for your um, like more ill patients or like less kind of like totally, um, mm-hmm. like I don't know. I I can imagine it would be something that was very difficult to understand and like potentially really traumatizing to kind of like see this person that they really trust all of a sudden <laughs> looking like a like a yeah yeah something scary yeah, and everybody's washing their hands all the time or put you know, shake hands and then you put the stuff on you know it just becomes kind of uh you know it, it when it's necessary it's necessary and we've been keeping our inpatient services open and doing beautifully there mm-hmm. and the people who work there are the people who work there every day so it's just become universal precautions everybody's wearing gowns and you know face shields every day and masks and that's just the way it is and and yeah. uh, that's the way it's going to be for a while until we get a handle on this thing yeah um, finally, but, uh, but I will say, but, but uh, sorry to just to, to finish even, up yeah, your, of course. one last thing. I think that some patients are having an extraordinarily hard time with this and the isolation of being, I think it for a month or two wasn't so bad. In fact, it even took the pressure off. It's like, okay, good. I don't have to go to work today or really? go to the school or uh, no one's expecting anything from me. You know, yeah. It was, was nice supposed to be two while. weeks at first. Yeah. But, but now that it's gone on so long, I think people are, are having more and more trouble with it. I think they're getting yeah. really frustrated. I think they're getting scared and I think it's hard to see an end to this. And I think for people who struggle physically or emotionally, it's, it's harder still. Yeah, completely. Um, I really do. I really do want to talk to you about, about sleep because sleep is a very hot topic right now, especially in, in mental health. And I honestly, I've always been, um, very adamant about my sleep, especially I was always a really good sleeper until uh, when I was going through my eating disorder, I was 
honestly, I think for like five years, sleep deprived because when your body's in starvation, you can't sleep. I was waking up all the mm-hmm. time. I couldn't sleep for very long. Mm-hmm. I honestly think to this day, that's why I am all of a sudden an early riser. I really do think that my body retrained itself. Like my, even when I got healthy again, um, I think that my sleep pattern was like kind of like altered, like really in a, mm-hmm. in a big way. And when I was younger, I mean, obviously I think that your sleep patterns change as you get a little bit older, but I was never like this early of a riser. And now I wake up less in the middle of the night and I can go to sleep much earlier, but I'm still like, I wake up at 6am naturally and I'm just awake. And I mm-hmm. don't think that that's, I would love to be able to go to sleep and set an alarm and have the alarm wake me up. Like that's, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I never really thought thought much about sleep having to do with mental health until until that until I really experienced it and yeah I would love to hear about it from you sleep has an enormous amount to do with our daily functioning it has to do with how much we eat it has to do with how much weight we lose or gain it has to do with how we concentrate how we learn how we memorize things how much we can pay attention to interactions it has to do with our physical response and our muscle building and there's just and mental health there's just not a single thing or part of our existence that doesn't have something to do with sleep imagine spending a third of your life in a certain state and imagining that that has nothing to do with the rest of your your life so it's just the irony of that is is so terrific given that nobody thought that anything happened during sleep that was important until about 1955 so really only in the last 60 70 years have we been appreciating that sleep is a unique and special time and every single study we do looking at any aspect of our emotional behavioral or thinking lives we can trace back to sleep having an important impact on that i teach a class at nyu called while you were sleeping and it's one of the most popular courses because so many people want to know about sleep. And this, I, I got the idea from Stanford, which started a course 30 years ago, and it's become one of their most popular courses. And you know, colleges only about 100 in the university in in the country out of maybe 3,000 colleges are offering courses like this. But we'll see more and more in the future because this is such a vital area. And when you have mental illness or just you know sadness or anxiety, sleep is a big part of that. And you noticed it right away. And in fact, we're, we're talking these days in treatment, not only about making sure that when someone has an eating disorder or any other disorder, that we have a good understanding of their sleep and address it because that mm-hmm. can make it better. But even when people have sleep problems first, that they kind of go unnoticed, we know that that can predict mental illness or disruption in emotion in, in the short and long term. So we should be addressing that up front as well, which is why it should be a part of our school education and, and all the rest. Wow. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, I feel like I could talk to you about this for for a very long time. I have no idea where our time went. It was so nice to meet you and I really do appreciate you taking the time. I know we've never met before and you're probably very busy. So thank you so much for taking this morning to speak with me. And um, yeah, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking down the line. You're, you're welcome. And thanks for reaching out to me. I'm happy to talk anytime. It was a pleasure meeting you and speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.